0: Alright, well let's jump into um, our sermon series this morning with this question. Okay, how, is, how important is it to us to make and keep promises? How important is it? Well, it kind of depends a little bit on the promise, right? I mean, you've got a big promise like a RAV4 and you don't deliver on it. That's kind of a big deal. But, you know, if it's a freeze pop, you get there late and they're all out, well, you know, you'll live another day. All right, well, I remember a promise uh, I made uh, to a girl back when I was on college campus. It was our very first date. I think her name was Kim. <laughs> and I asked her to go to, the, to a Michael Murphy concert that is coming to campus. Now, I know you guys, you couldn't, you know, have no idea, but he's kind of like, a, Michael Murphy's kind of like, uh, like the Bruno Mars, you know, or uh, of our generation kind of a thing. So he was coming, and so um, I decided, okay, you know, I'm going to invite this girl. First date, we're going to do it. Uh, so I called her up. She said she'd go. And then I went to buy the tickets. Guess what happened? Out of tickets. Completely sold out. Michael Murphy was a big deal back then. All right, well, um, uh, I tried to make up for it, okay? I, uh, I asked her to go to get ice cream at Swinson's Ice Cream instead okay so promise made but not kept Uh, but it turned out okay you know because we went to ice cream and then we got married we've been married for 37 years (laughs) now I know what you're thinking you're thinking Jeff that was some great ice cream you know okay for the to go for the date and it it was great in fact I keep a like a gallon of it in the freezer just in case I need it again (laughs) but what about God Hey, what about God? Any Eye uh, football here uh, fans here wanna, want God to promise us an undefeated season national championship? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a God-sized promise for us, you know? <laughs> but seriously, though, what, what would you ask God to promise you? What would you ask an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, uh, loving and just God? to promise you? What would you ask of him? In Scripture, we see that God makes and answers promises. You may not have heard it said this way, but some of God's promises are called prophecies where God declares in advance events that he's going to cause to happen, and they do happen. Some of his promises are declarations of of healing. Uh, God or, or Jesus speaks words of physical and emotional and relational restoration, and it happens. Some of his promises are descriptions of his own character, his own unchanging character. God says things, reveals his character, his attributes, and he never expresses attributes contrary to what he's told us of who he is. And then some of his promises are directions to us on how to live. With eternity in mind, God gives enduring wisdom, instruction to guide us on this earth because what we do echoes for eternity. And in the Gospel of Matthew this semester, we're going to learn about a lot about God through his son, Jesus. Jesus lives a life of promise that perfectly fulfills ancient prophecies. Uh, Jesus miraculously heals people. He clearly reveals God's majesty, and he boldly manifests eternal life for everybody to see. I mean, not once, not once does Jesus stumble. Not once does he do the wrong things or fail to help the way God has promised that he would. He's all about, Jesus is all about the kingdom of heaven. As we dive into our brand new series this morning, the Gospel of Matthew, I'm just going to briefly reflect on the first two chapters. Uh, In Matthew, there are at least 60 quotations of Old Testament text, ancient prophecies, numerous allusions to other Old Testament passages. And one of the reasons we've entitled this sermon series, The Life of Promise, is for all of these promise and fulfillments that Christ brought about that the first century church experienced. Uh, the best way to understand these kinds of promises about Jesus is like this, is that seeing, seeing Jesus' life, he fulfills, he completes all the messianic promises of God found in Scripture. This is the way Jesus describes himself. In Matthew five seventeen. Jesus is speaking and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not an Iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So everything that the Old Testament had to say about God and the the promised Messiah either has, is, or will be fulfilled. Every promise is being fulfilled. Ancient promises, hundreds, thousands of years old have borne the test of time. And others are being fulfilled right now all over the world in some of the languages that we have just sung. There are people that are finding their need for a savior and they experience that promised salvation. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps it to prove his indomitable love for you. Now when you read Matthew chapter 1 and 2, you see that Jesus' birth was promised by god angels spoke promises were fulfilled and then god made sure when jesus shows up for his ministry about 30 years later that there has been someone coming to prepare people's hearts for the coming messiah and he did it through this man that was promised hundreds of years earlier to come and do just that that man's name was john And John has come at a time where the nation and its leadership were destitute. I mean, this whole nation, they have been looking for God. They've been looking for Him to show up and at least say something. But it's been nothing but crickets for 400 years. Spiritually, emotionally, politically, militarily, Israel's been sinking into oblivion with no word from God. Uh, There's a a national and personal dread in the lives of Israel. I mean, they were asking themselves, where is God in all of our challenges? Where is God in our despair? So how about you? How are you starting this fall? Have you heard from God in a while? Are you feeling uncertain about your future? Are you wondering if God cares what happens to you? If so, you're right where Jesus showed up in the life of Israel to prove that He cares about you. That's where we are when we come to Matthew chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now, and we're going to look at the first three verses. Starting with verse 3, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then matthew adds this little note for this is he who was uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet isaiah when he said and here's the quote by isaiah the voice of the one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight now you may know this that when writers of scripture want to remake a point or remind of a truth, an ancient prophecy, they often point to where they got it. Here, Matthew is pointing to the prophet Isaiah, his writings. Uh, His writings, this prophecy, was written 700 years before the time of Christ. And you guys do this too. I mean, by now, many of you have written term papers or research papers or, or work proposals And you cite your reliable sources. You quote them or at least footnote them. Matthew, throughout his gospel, he points out some of these promises made, promises kept. Promises made, promises fulfilled of Jesus' life. That these quotes prove that the ancient prophecies, these, these promises concerning actually John the Baptist and Jesus hundreds of years before, they have come true. We don't have time to dwell on all these this morning, but, but look at Isaiah's description of this person. Isaiah's description that he made 700 years before John the Baptist showed up. Isaiah 43 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's describing what John the Baptist's job is. Uh, these are the first five verses, Isaiah 40. And they use this kind of physical road construction as a spiritual metaphor, describing the return of of Jewish royalty and exiles from Babylon. And for obvious reasons of speed and ease of travel and and safety, an ambassador would travel ahead of all these people to make sure that the road was constructed for the people and for the king. Isaiah 40 is quoted here in Matthew as... The spiritual fulfillment of this ambassador's coming. And John the Baptist is the ambassador preparing the hearts of Israel to welcome Jesus, their king, who brings with him the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. John's calling for people to kind of clear the obstacles out of their hearts to welcome King Jesus, who would bring with him the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. John's calling for people to to clear out their hearts, to to get them ready to prepare their heart and life for the arrival of the King Jesus. Now, this would have been a convicting and compelling message, but it also would have been an exciting one too. By this time, the people of Israel had had their fill of Greek and Roman rule. Uh, Those rulers dominating them. But they desperately wanted a a return to the promised earthly glories of the ancient monarchy under King David and King Solomon and, and their descendants, as was promised in Scripture. But that time had not come yet. That earthly national promise to Israel is yet to be fulfilled, even today. And that's not what Israel expected Uh, They wanted that promised peace and that prosperity and, and descendants that were as many as the stars in the heaven that was promised to Abraham thousands of years before. So in a spiritual sense, we can say that the kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus. It has started, but the full earthly manifestation of that kingdom has not happened yet it's not arrived. What's evident now is that there's this fulfillment of Isaiah 43 is that the one who is spiritually to prepare the nation of Israel has come. And he, John, is just as the ancient promises prophets promised. And the spiritual preparation of John can best be described as repentance. He's preparing them through a baptism of repentance. Let's look at the impact that John has in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him and and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Uh, Interesting the description of uh, John the Baptist's appearance and his diet is intended to make an impact on us, even today, just as it did in John's day. Now, you may not get this because we don't understand uh, what's happening in comparison to the other Old Testament prophets. So recognize John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew, John is likened to the Old Testament uh, prophet Elijah who lived around 850 B.C. And his ministry is described in First and 2 Kings. There he's described as a man who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And this attire later became regularly associated with Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist's austere clothing and personality and preferring to move at the Lord's leading through the wilderness areas of Israel, it created a distinctly prophetic type of ministry. John's diet of locusts and wild honey was a staple of the poorest in society. He was also uh, humble and peaceable with people who were desirous of living right before God. Those people who, as opposed to the religious leaders of his time, most often they responded to his call for repentance. Being more desperate to hear from God and John's call for repentance resulted in people sensing conviction from God. And repentant people baptized in the water of the Jordan River was symbolic of the spiritual cleansing and commitment they were making to God at that time. John's call to repentance is like the prophets of the Old Testament. He is calling people into a right relationship with God that must affect every aspect of their lives. Repentance always called for a change in a person's uh, attitude towards God, and it would impact their actions and the overall direction of their lives. But as similar as John's message was to the Old Testament prophet, prophets, there's a distinctly new sound to it. He calls people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is now near. The kingdom has come near in the soon arriving Messiah. And verse 5 says that people from all over the region were responding to John's message. Their confession of sin and repentance was preparing their hearts and it was instilling hope. As we noted earlier, John is is the one foretold by Isaiah who would be privileged to prepare the people of Israel for their king and for the kingdom's arrival. Jesus himself also backs up these comments on John. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 11, uh, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John Uh, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Furthermore, in the Gospel of Luke, the angel of the Lord tells Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that John will, and here are the words from the angel of the Lord, turn many children of Israel to their God, uh, and he will go before them in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What the angel said is a quote from Malachi 4, written 400 years before. Okay, about now, the only people awake in this message are Old Testament scholars, okay? I get it, I get it. Uh, but I reference all these texts to make a point, okay? God makes good on His promises. You can trust Him. He promises a lot of good for those whose hearts are set on His Son, Jesus, who is the promised King of heaven. God makes and keeps promises so we can respond to Him in faith. That's what we're talking about. So where's your heart? Is it on this road of confession and repentance to to receive the King's gift of eternal life? Is it filled with a sense of hope of what God can do in you and through you? So John was humble, definitely more peaceable with people who sought to live rightly before God, but but he was more abrupt, more abrasive with hypocritical and self-righteous people. We're looking at verses 7 through 12, and we're going to get a snapshot of his typical interaction with the religious leaders of his time. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the the religious leaders of the time, when he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. I'm sure that endeared them to him right away. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's that word again. And do not presume to say to yourselves. We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of these trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here John is calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, for their self-righteousness. He calls them vipers, poisonous, deceptive serpents. Next week, we're going to see that serpent motif lift out a little, little differently. John's saying that these religious leaders, he's telling me, you are deceiving yourselves. Uh, you're suffering from your own poison if you think that your family tree makes for a good spiritual tree. Their actions are really revealing who they are. And then John finishes speaking to them with these words, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with uh, water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's pointing to the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Savior of the world, who will also judge the world. Now, there's an eternal accounting coming, and and it's in the hands of this one mightier than than I that John's talking about. That good will be rewarded and evil will will be judged. Make no mistake, God makes and keeps his promises. So we don't reject His warnings. They're there for a reason. Now in these last five verses, we see Jesus, John, God the Father, the Holy Spirit come together for the greatest promise ever. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him saying, I need to be baptized by you, do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. Now, remember, we said John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Uh, That meant it was a spiritual practice that acknowledged one's sins. And it was a commitment, a promise to turn away from living in sin. John knows that Jesus has no sin. John calls Jesus the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We'll see that in a chapter or two. This Old Testament sacrificial language means that that Jesus is without sin, so a baptism of repentance does not apply to Him. And John tries to stop Jesus (coughs) from being baptized. Basically, he says to Jesus, Look, you can't be baptized with my baptism, because mine's a baptism for sinners. So what John is saying to Jesus is, You're not a sinner. You're not a sinner. He's declaring, on the other hand, that I need to be baptized by you. Yeah, me and everybody else who are sinners. So why does Jesus insist on being baptized here? I think it's so that he can be identified with sinners. How so? Well, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, it says that this suffering servant king, Jesus, that by his wounds we are healed, he shall bear the iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered, identified with transgressors, sinners. So to summarize what many Bible scholars would say, Jesus submitted to John's baptism just symbolically so that he could identify with sinners who were seeking salvation. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is where it starts. This is where it happens. This is probably the first time publicly that Jesus reveals what the Apostle Paul would later say to the Corinthian church. That for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Uh, him to, to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why Jesus says of his own baptism, that it must be done to fulfill, not some, but all righteousness, to complete all that God had set out for him to do. Jesus is saying that it was the will of God for him to be baptized by John in order that he may be identified with sinners, in order that sinners can go like, wow, maybe he has something for me. God made promises and God kept those promises, every promise, all for your good and my good. All that has been and will be kept. Matthew shows us here that God kept these ancient promises of sending John and sending Jesus. And the word that God chooses to describe Jesus here as he comes out, from the water, those are also steeped in ancient prophecies. When God speaks in verse 17 and says, This is my son, he uses a text right out of the Messianic Psalm 2. That passage describes this future Messianic king who is to come. In that Psalm, God is saying, This is my son, this is the king who's going to rule every nation. Nations are going to conspire against him, but he will rule them. That's Psalm 2. Jesus is saying, I mean, God the Father is saying, that's my son. Jesus is this holy Messiah who is going to come in strength and rule all nations. And then when God the Father said of Jesus, with whom I am well pleased, that is a quote. That's a quote from Isaiah 42. In fact, in several chapters of Isaiah, verses, chapter 42 and 53 especially, we see these comparisons in contrast to the messianic king who was also a suffering servant. The Holy King is also a suffering servant. That's the reason why John the Baptist is so confused. John knows he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. Jesus should be baptizing him. Jesus says, no, I've come to be a substitute. I've come to identify with you and others. I've come to fulfill the greatest promise ever. I've come to take your sinful place. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, as I close this morning, the most amazing promise that we can ever have fulfilled is salvation through Jesus. Jesus is not our example. He is way more than that. Meaning Jesus didn't come just to show us how to to work hard and earn or merit eternal life. That's not what He was doing. Jesus is our substitute. He does what we cannot do. We cannot live a perfect life. He lived perfectly. He lived a perfect and holy and sinless life. And then he offers his righteousness to us as a gift. Uh, The Bible, God makes these promises to us. God promises to be just. He says evil must be punished. Otherwise, there is no justice. And then amazingly, he's a compassionate God too. A God who says... There must be grace also. And only He knows how to do both of those. So stick around through the rest of our study in Matthew, and you're going to see that God says this, we are more sinful than we ever imagined, and we are more loved than we could ever dream. And that grace not only provides for our eternity, but impacts us right here, right now in the greatest relationships, and the most fulfilling life possible. You see, God makes and keeps promises. Not for us to ignore the realities of life, but for us to receive Jesus' offer of eternal life. Now, next week is going to be great. Next week, we're going to see how to live this promised life. At least get a, a head start on it. Uh, and have you ever done things in your life that, that were wrong and you regretted it? Maybe you've even been mad at yourself that you did it, but you went out and did it again and again. It's hurting your relationships. It's shriveling your soul. You know it's wrong It's bad for you, but you're trapped. Next week, Jesus keeps His promise to be holy. And He also shows us how to fight and win the battle of temptation. So based on this passage this morning, here are some things that you want to think about as you start your week. Application one, find out what God has promised you. He will deliver on that promise. Maybe a way to do that is to, to read the Gospel of Matthew with us this semester. In your uh, bulletins, you've got this little bookmark. Maybe you could use this just to stick it in your Bible or in your books to remind you of that commitment to to read through the Gospel of Matthew. Second application, make a promise to God that will strengthen and, or deepen your relationship with Him. Whether you keep that promise flawlessly or you struggle in it, I promise you're going to learn something from it. So let's take a minute to pray about all this. Father, we recognize the, the challenges that we have And the challenges that we have before us are impossible for us to accomplish in our own strength. That's why you have promised your son that you have made a way uh, for us to prevail in this life. Uh, The realities of life will hit us in the face. Uh, We'll see those struggles and those challenges or they, they can distract us from where you would have us to go. And yet In your grace and mercy and in your provision of your Son, Jesus, uh, there is strength to be able to say yes to you and no to these distractions, no to these temptations. Father, I ask that your Spirit would um, encourage, uh, inspire us as a congregation to engage your word uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. That we may read in there and see that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping